not only does he equip and bless, he deafens your ears when he turns his mic on. <laughs> the message today I've got is faith in the word. And um, it's really important with everything we do. The, the, the theme for this year is expansion. The theme scripture is Isaiah 54 verses two and three. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you'll expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Um, one of the things I was thinking this morning as we were praying, particularly uh, the last couple of weeks while I've been speaking at MFI, that whole phrase, strengthen your stakes, the foundation of what we stand for is something that we need to really, really focus on. The foundation is an important part. And I was thinking of, the, uh, of a runner as he takes off. If you're going to expand, the timings of these are all out, I think. We'll just pause it there. If it goes off again, just turn it off for the moment. Um, as a runner takes off, he presses on the block and from that position, he then runs. So when, it's, when the gun goes, he can push off. He needs to have a good solid foundation to take off from. Now, if we're going to have a, a theme for this year of expansion, we need to have a foundation that we work from. And the Word of God has got to be our foundation. It's got to be the sure place that we start with. And faith is actually trusting God will do what he said he will do. And so often, uh, like we had this morning, we have to press in, we have to press in, we have to declare, we have to stand our ground. God wants to be a God who is our God. Amen? He doesn't just want to be someone in the background. He doesn't want to be just the God we call on when we, when we have a need. He wants to walk with us. He said, lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. You need to know that in everything you do, I am there with you. So we have to come back to a foundation place where we can say, I know that God is real. I know that his word is real for me. And there's a number of questions people often have and people will often ask, how do I know the Bible is really for me today? Who's ever questioned the Bible as relevant to you today? Or am I the only one? There are times where we ask the question, how do I know the Bible's really the word of God? How do we know? It's a book we've been told. How do we know? And so I want to go through a few points today and hopefully I can get through this quickly uh, of how we know the Bible is the word of God. Because the two questions people ask is firstly that, how do I know the Bible is the word of God and is it relevant to me today? Because I've heard people say, well, the Bible's a great book. Yes, it's God's word, but it was for back then. It's not relevant to today, but I believe it is. And I want to go through some of these points today. So firstly, I believe the word of God is the word of God because it stood the test of time. Amen. There have been so many attacks on the word over years, but 1 Peter 1.25 says, the word of the Lord endures forever. No book has ever been through so much attack as the Bible has. There have been rulers that have tried to just obliterate it from the earth and they failed. I, I, I'm not sure the facts of it. I think it was Constantine, when he, when he came into power, he, he got saved and said, I want a copy of the Bible because the Bible had been wiped out by the previous ruler. And he offered a reward. And within a very, very short time of offering that reward, I think he had something like 50 Bibles presented to him. So even though men have tried to wipe it out, God has made sure that it's always been safe. Men have laughed at it, they've scorned it, they've burnt it, they've ridiculed it, they've made laws against it and attempted to obliterate it, but the word of God has survived. Look at some other writings. Caesar's Gallic Wars is written in the first century BC and there's only 10 manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied was a thousand years after the writing. 
So there's only 10 copies of a book that came out at a similar time, and the earliest writing we have is a 1,000 years later. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the 4th century BC, and there's only five manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied in 1,400 years after the original. The New Testament was written in the 1st century AD. This is the New Testament, not the Old Testament. There are about 25,000 early manuscripts in existence. So we've gone from 10 on one, five on another, but the Bible's got 25,000. God made sure it stood the test of time. The Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the collections include 972 texts from the Hebrew Bible, which is not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. There are hundreds of extra biblical fragments, most are dated around 150 BC and, uh, through to 150 BC to 70 AD. And if we look at the way the Bible's been translated over the years, they, they were so respectful of the Word of God that they took such incredible detail in, in translating. Everything had to be done to the, to the detail, the letters, the lines, everything was counted. They even counted back to the middle, uh, the middle letter of the, of the Bible to actually find out that letter was actually the right letter. Every transcript was, was accurately done, was, was done in such detail. If a, if a mistake was discovered, they'd throw the whole thing away because the Word of God has got to be exact. They were so, so thorough with the way they did it all. The discovery in 1947 of the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls meant that we could take these really, really early writings and compare it to the Bible we have now. And you know what they found? It's still the same. God's Word has stood the test of time. In terms of quantity, the New Testament is, is represented far more than any other piece of ancient literature. And if it were just a book, it probably wouldn't have survived. If it was just another book, people would have gone, whatever. But this is the word of God, and God made sure that his word stood the test of time. I love it in uh, Jeremiah 1.12, it says, God is watching over his word to perform it. Men may try and take it, but God says, I'm watching my word. God will protect his word. God will make sure that it stands because it is his word. Secondly, I believe the Bible is the word of God because it demonstrates scientific accuracy. And as I started reading through some of these, I'm not a scientist, but there are so many things that the Bible covers that science actually confirms. And I just want to look at a couple. In Job 26, 7, it said, God hangs the earth on nothing. How did Job know that the earth hung in space when scientists didn't even know that. The Holy Spirit told him. And we look so many, many years later, Job is, is believed to be the first book written in the Bible, even though it comes later in, in what we read it today. It's believed to be one of the first books written. And it was several thousand years before they discovered that the earth actually had a gravitational pull and all the other bits and pieces. So when Job says God hangs the earth on nothing, that was years before science even understood that the earth was hanging on nothing. Greek mythology, they actually thought it was actually sitting on the back of a beast. There's, there's one, I can't remember which one it is, they believe that the earth is being held up by, I think it's four elephants standing on the back of a turtle. <laughs> you look at Isaiah 40:22. it's God who sits above the circle of the earth. You know, the earliest reliable documented mention of a spherical earth concept dates around the 6th century BC, 100 years after Isaiah wrote this. But that was only believed as a theory. It was never confirmed until 300 years before Christ. So about 700 years before Christ, 
Isaiah is saying God sits above the circle of the earth. Psalms, uh, sorry, Psalms 8 verse 8 refers to the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. The currents of the sea were only studied in the last, I think, hundred years, several hundred years, whatever it is. Um, but this is going back many, many, many years prior to that. And there are so many different scientific things that have been found. And when you actually look up some of these, they say the earliest discovery of this, the earliest accurate discovery is 1500 AD. And yet the Bible talks about it hundreds of years before Christ was born. But they don't refer to that as the accurate recording because it's just the Bible. But this is the word of God. God knows how he created things. God knows where he stands. He knows what he's put in place. And he's confirmed it before science even discovered it. So science is actually confirming what the Bible already has said is true. The next one, I believe the Bible is the word of God because it's affirmed through historical accuracy. What I love about the Bible is it portrays a real world. You know, there is not one single time you're reading the Bible once upon a time. It's not a fairy tale. It's based on scientific fact. It's based on on real time, real place, real events that can actually be recorded, can actually be checked up on based on historical data. Luke 2, 1 to 3 says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out uh, from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now Luke is writing something here and he's got facts, he's got details, he's got data there that we can go back and confirm because the reality is if the historical data is wrong, we have every reason to believe the rest is wrong. If Luke gets it wrong, are we going to question all the other stuff he says about Jesus? Naturally we would. And Luke is showing that Augustus is Caesar in Rome, Quirinius is the governor of Syria, and from Luke chapter 1 verse 5 we know that Herod the Great is ruling over the Jews. Now history shows us that Herod died in 4 BC, but Quirinius didn't take up governing Syria until 6 AD, which is 10 years later. So on first look at this we might say, well Luke got it wrong. The historical records show that Herod died 4 BC, Quirinius takes up rulership 10 years after that. What is Luke doing? Because if he's got this wrong, we have every right to question the rest of what he's got. But archaeological evidence, there have been some coins discovered that give us further clues. They refer to Quirinius as the governor of Syria between 7 and 2 BC. So it appears that Quirinius was the governor from 7 to 2 BC, stepped down from office, did something else for a few years, and then stepped back into office as the governor later on. That's not recognised in historical data, but archaeological evidence has now said, they've now added to the historical data and said, actually, Luke is right. The Bible, again, is historically accurate. Remember the handwriting on the wall with Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar hosted a feast with thousands of lords and ladies. Suddenly, a gruesome hand appeared out of nowhere and began to write on the wall. The king was so disturbed... He asked for someone to interpret the writing and Daniel was found and gave the interpretation. And in Daniel 5.29, we see it says, Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made him a a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, I've never read this before, 
But why would a king make somebody the third ruler of the kingdom? Unless there was someone else. Again, we go back to history. Babylonian records say that the last king of Babylon was not Belshazzar, but a man, a man named Nabonidus. Again, we see there's a historical discrepancy. And we could say, well, the Bible's got it wrong again. But again, we go back and, uh, to the um, archaeological discovery. In 1853, an inscription was found on a cornerstone of a temple built by Nabonidus uh, to the god of Ur, which read, May I, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, not sin against thee, and may reverence for, for thee dwell in the heart of Belshazzar, my firstborn favourite son. So Belshazzar was actually the son but we actually discover through, through history, through archaeological records, that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were co-rulers. So again, the Bible is now referring to Belshazzar as the ruler, which he was, which has been confirmed through his history. And that would make Daniel the third ruler of the city because there's two other rulers already. The next one, I believe the Bible is the word of God because from Genesis to Revelation, it reads as one book. What I love is the Bible, it's one book, but it's made up of 66 books written by at least 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years in 13 different countries on three different continents, and it was written in at least three different languages by people of all professions. Now, if a doctor was gonna write something and a factory worker was gonna write something, you'd pretty much pick the difference. And yet all the way through the Bible, we see that it reads as though there's one author because the Holy Spirit is the author. And he gave the words to the men to who, who wrote. Dr. Adrian Rogers says, the Bible forms one beautiful temple of truth that does not contradict itself theologically, morally, ethically, doctrinally, scientifically, historically, or in any other way. The fifth point, I believe the Bible is the word of God because it's the only book that has accurate prophecy. When you read the prophecies of the Bible, you can stand back in awe. Jesus alone, there's over 300 prophecies that deal with him in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, 300. Now, I read on one side, I don't know how accurate this is, but apparently a mathematician put it all together. One person fulfilling eight prophecies, the chance of that happening is one, I don't even know what this number is, 100 million million thousand, so whatever that is, a whole lot. <laughs> uh, one person fulfilling 48 prophecies, so that's only, that's only eight prophecies. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies, the chance is uh, one in 10 to the 157th power. I believe that's a quintillion, if you ever want to bother counting that high. One person fulfilling 300 prophecies, only God could do that. So the chances of this happening in real life are impossible but for God because God is bigger. So we look at all this, we understand the Bible is, yeah, there's a good chance this is the word of God. There's a good chance God's got his hand on this and if that's the case, I need to pay attention to it. But the question I need to answer is, is it relevant to me today? Was it a book that's historically accurate that was for them back then? What does it mean for me today? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has timeless relevance. If he was relevant back then, 
then he's relevant today. If he's relevant today, he'll be relevant tomorrow. So while we live in a, in a, in a, a time where people say Jesus isn't relevant, the Bible, which has been proven as the word of God, begs to differ. That Jesus is very relevant today, people just don't know that yet. So here's a thought. Last week, uh, I think it was last week, the week before, we looked at uh, the phrase that God said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. God spoke, let there be light, and light was. The universe is still expanding at the speed of light. You can't move anything faster than the speed of light. It's the fastest thing you can get, at least according to science. But when God said, let there be light, and the world is still expanding at the speed of light, God's word is still creating. So if God's word is still creating, to me, that says God's word is still alive. And if God's word is still alive, and I'll hold up this because I've got God's word on it, but God's word is alive for me today because God's word doesn't pass away. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That first part, the word of God is alive. The Bible tells us the word of God is alive. He spoke, he created, the world was. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all God's promises are yes and amen. Have all God's promises come to completion yet? But they're still yes and amen according to the word of God. Isaiah 55.11, God's word doesn't return to him void. If God's word is alive and some of the prophecies haven't been completed yet, God's word doesn't return to him void. So just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean anything. God will still act on those to make sure they come to pass. So just as God spoke at the beginning of creation and said, let there be light, his word is still alive, still continuing, and it will still continue until all his prophetic words are fulfilled. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture is also known as the word of God. You can't speak without breathing. Who's ever tried that? I want you to try saying victory without breathing. Give it a go. Without breathing. It's not physically possible. The only way you can project sound is to move air. Air moves over your vocal cords. So when God spoke, God was breathing. God's word is God's breath. God is alive. It's God's breath to you. He is still alive. So we go the next step. Once we understand the Bible is God's word to us, we then need to start applying that word to our lives. I don't want to just take the word of God and say, wow, this is a holy book. This is awesome. Let's stick it on a shelf and never touch it because it's just worth too much. What benefit is there for that? What benefit is there for, for you if you had a million dollars to stick it in your bank account and say, I'm never going to touch that because that's just worth too much money? If you have something of value, you want to use it. If you have the word of God, which is of value to you, you need to use it. You need it to apply it to your own lives. But we need to find out what the Bible says on the whole about something, not just pick little bits and pieces and say, well, I like this bit. That's suitable to me. We have to look at the whole thing. 
Kevin Connor, in his, uh, in his uh, study, A Key of Knowledge, he talks about a bit like the onion. You take the verse, you take the verses around that, you take the book, you take the, the, the New Testament, you take the Bible, you've got to unpack it in layers to find out what that one verse is saying. I'll give you an example. Imagine you're sick and you go to the Word of God to see what he says about your health and you just pick any random verse that talks about God dealing with health. You might come up with this one from Deuteronomy 28, 22. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever. Well, maybe God doesn't want me healthy. Okay, well, if he doesn't want me healthy, maybe he wants me successful. Oh Lord, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall, come to trouble, you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay, God doesn't want me healthy. God doesn't want me successful. Uh, does he want me to live a long life? I mean, what, what's, what's the plan with all this? Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. What happens when we look at this and we go, God must really hate me. Is God a God of love? Obviously not, because the Lord will send, you, send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hands to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. If we take these verses and we say, that's what God's word says about me, we get a very glim picture of what God thinks about us. He doesn't want us healthy. He doesn't want us to be successful. He doesn't want us to live a long life. He's definitely not a God of love because he wants to destroy us. And we get all that by picking one verse and saying, this is what the Bible says about me. But if we unpack the Bible properly and we look at everything in context, because this is actually referring to the curses that would come on Israel if they didn't obey the word of God. Galatians 3 talks about we're redeemed from the curse of the law. So these verses don't even apply to us anymore. But if we look and say, well, what does the Bible actually say? We unpack it, we study it, we look at the cross, we look at everything that God had, we look at salvation, we look at God's plan from Genesis right through to Revelation, we see that God does want you well, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That verse tells me that God wants me well. Does God want you successful? Beloved, I pray you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Again, taken in context of the whole Bible. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God promises to give you a long life. And he's God a God of love. Who reckons I could answer that one? What's the classic verse we go to for God is a God of love? John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's verse 17. So I look at this and I see that God is very different when I actually study the Bible in its whole. And unfortunately what we see today is that people take one scripture and they say, this is what the Bible says, and I'm going to stand on it. If you try challenging me, I will pull this verse out and I will show you that you're a liar, that the Bible you're standing on is not true. But they're taking one little verse, they're twisting that, and they're making it say something that it really doesn't say. I can take a scripture and I can twist it 
to say what I want to say, but people often manipulate the word to make it suit their situation. But we need to take a verse, we need to unpack it, we need to look at the verses around that, we need to look at the chapter around that, we need to look at the book, we need to look at the culture of the day in which that was written, we need to look at the audience it was written to. We need to unpack this properly and find out what is actually being said and why is it being said this way. Because we tend to look at things through what we understand from a Western mindset in 2017. But we need to go back and say what was being said then and we only get that when we unpack it completely and get the whole story. So we need to take ownership of the word. Because when I read the Bible, the other thing we need to look at too is that the the words are anointed, the numbers are not. So often we can take one verse and read that, but we need to read the following verse to see there's, there's more to this. So don't just finish at the end of a chapter or the end of a verse, see what the rest has said. And we can go one step further and we say the Bible itself as a book is nothing more than a book with words on pages. Once I open that book and I start reading that book, God starts breathing into my life and now his word comes alive. Because until his word comes alive for me, it's nothing more than a book with words. It has to be studied. Now we also need to know how to take ownership of the word and how to, how to live it out. Who's ever heard the term binding and loosing? You know, it doesn't have anything to do with devils. So often people are referred to, to binding and loosing as something to do with demons. Now if a demon comes up and you have to bind it, then you bind it. You do whatever you have to when, when God leads you. But the background to this comes from the... From, uh, has everything to do with being a rabbi. And Jesus would have understood binding and loosing. He was a rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher of Jewish values and customs and as such, the authoritative judge or arbitrator. Every rabbi taught what was called a yoke, which was the teaching or the interpretation of the law that they were permitted to teach. So for example, the Torah forbids that one works on the Sabbath. So the key word here that people say, well, define work. What can I get away with? We still do that today. The Bible says don't, but how far can I push this? And you look at that word work, what does that actually mean? So the rabbi would have to have a ruling on this based on what he was allowed to, how he was allowed to interpret it through the yoke that he, uh, that he lived by. That yoke he received from his rabbi before him. So he would look at the, the law and say, well, I bind you from doing this on that day and I lease you to do this on that day. So the binding and loosing was his interpretation of the law and how that was all broken down. And occasionally there was a rabbi who was ordained with authority or the Hebrew word is semika. Jesus was known as one who had authority. He also said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the Bible very clearly talks about when you understand the yoke, when you understand authority, when you understand all this, you see that Jesus wasn't just a rabbi, he was a rabbi who had authority. And that meant that he was able to bring his own interpretation to the law. He was able to bring his own judgment, his own tweak to it, based on what he felt God was giving him. So the rabbis, they didn't just live, they chose their disciples. And every Jewish child wanted to become a rabbi. That was their, that's their lifelong goal. Not everyone makes it, but the, the rabbi would come along to someone and say, follow me. And so when Jesus comes to the disciples and says, follow me, the fact that they're actually working means they didn't make it as a rabbi. This is their second chance. 
This is their second chance to make it in, in what is deemed to be something successful. So Jesus says, follow me. They, they become his disciples, but they, they have to choose to accept that because they could have said, actually, nah, I'm doing pretty good with fishing. I think I'll stick at this industry. They, they could choose that because it was a choice. The rabbi says, come follow me. The disciple says, yes, I want to, and they then become a disciple. They have to choose to accept this life. And as a disciple, they then choose to accept the yoke of their new master for life. Once you accept, once you're a disciple, his yoke is your yoke. You teach that, you live that. When you teach somebody else, you teach the yoke that you're allowed to live. That is what you are required to live by for the rest of your life. And the other thing I love is the disciples live with the rabbi from that day forward the disciples of a rabbi are referred to as his household. If we look at John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus chose us. And we've sing that song, I found Jesus, great song, love the groove of it, but the reality is that Jesus chose me. And I chose to respond to him based on that. So you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So put up your hand here if you're a disciple. In fact, if you're a disciple, stand up. Have a look around the room. All these people here are disciples of Christ. Who's the rabbi? Who are the disciples? What do you teach? What else do you teach? His yoke. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You can sit down again. But know that pretty much every person in this room who was able to stand up stood up. I am a disciple of Christ. Jesus is the rabbi. As a disciple, I can only teach what he taught. So I go back to the word here and I say, this is my yoke. This is what I teach. This is how I live. Once God chose you to be his disciple, you respond to that call, you accept the position, you accept the yoke, and it's your yoke for life. You are now required by law, spiritual law, to live the yoke of Christ for life. His yoke becomes your yoke. His teachings become your teachings. His way of life becomes your way of life. The disciples live with him from that day forward. And Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That confirms the fact that we are part of the household. And Galatians 6.10 refers to us as the household of faith. You are a people of faith if you're a disciple of Christ. As a disciple of the rabbi, you would teach his yoke. You're bound to bind what he binds and you are loosed to loose what he looses. Bit of a tongue twister. But his yoke is your yoke. So here's the thing. We have a plebiscite coming up. You actually don't have a vote. Your answer is no based on the Bible because his yoke is your yoke and what we need to understand is once you give your life to Christ you say Father you have given me absolutely everything 
You are the best thing that ever happened to me. I will choose to follow you. God has a plan for your life, a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, a plan to give you a hope and a future. If God has been around for all this time, surely he knows better than I do. My little Homer Simpson brain in comparison to him, he knows a lot more than I do. So I'm better off saying, well, you do it better, so I'm just gonna follow what you want. So when the plebiscite comes, my response isn't, well, what do I think? I need to understand, Jesus said in Matthew 19, four to six, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What we also need to remember is when God made man and woman, he initially made man, Everything was in man, but when he made woman, he took a part of woman out of man. Every organ in your body functions on its own. You have your own heart, you don't need somebody else. You have your own liver, you don't need somebody else. You have your own kidneys, at least when you're born, you don't need someone else. Medical interventions sometimes might, may step in and actually help prolong life, but the reality is when God made you, you have everything you need to live, except your reproductive organs. And man needs a woman for the two to become one. The two parts can only become one as a man and woman. That's where it goes back to a creation. But regardless of what you think, regardless of what is being taught uh, in the world around us, we have to go back to what Jesus said because his yoke is my yoke. If you stood up and said, I'm a disciple of Jesus, you actually don't have an option. Amen? Amen. We live in perilous times. The Bible tells us that. We live in times when good is evil and evil is good. We know all this sort of stuff. The reality is the purpose of this plebiscite is to say, what sort of society do you want to live in? What sort of society do you want for your children? And the media will do what they do best. They will say, this is how it is. The reality is, I need to ignore the media. I need to come back, Jesus, what are you saying? And instead of allowing the media to influence me, Instead of allowing Facebook to influence me, my role as a disciple is to teach others. Your role as a disciple is to teach others not to be taught. The only person you're taught by is Jesus. His yoke becomes your yoke. You then teach that to others. If we're going to address sin, then we need to address sin in the church, not in the world. And that can be a bit of a challenge. We look at, we look at the whole homosexual thing that's going on. We look at same-sex marriage. We look at all this. That's happening in the world. We're not called to judge the world. We're called to judge within the church. And the reality is we look at this and we look at, we have a graph on the left from you're perfect at the bottom through you're going straight to hell. And we might look at some of these things that come up and we say, well, how do I actually respond to this? I'll stick it on the graph somewhere there. I'll look at stealing. Stealing's actually really bad. Daniel came down in the church service and some, somebody was trying to break into our shed while we were at church this morning. I have an opinion on stealing and I have an opinion on that person. And I would have liked to be home at that time. But my job is to actually be Christ to that person. And when you've been affected and offended by someone, that starts becoming a challenge. But I might have an opinion on stealing. I might say, well... You really messed up. You know, there's a chance for forgiveness. Yeah, well, you might go to jail. You might you know, have to pay back. But you messed up. It's not irreparable. 
We'll look at something like lying. Lying, that's, just, that's not a good thing. I'll, I'll stick it up there. I'm pretty sure God saw that one. <laughs> gossip. I hate gossip. I hate it when people are talking about other people in such a bad way. I don't like it when people talk about, oh, actually, me gossiping? Well, actually, we'll just we'll pull that back a bit. <laughs> what about the one we never talk about? Gluttony. Food. Who loves their food? <laughs> Who loves chocolate? <laughs> food is a problem in society today. And yet, if we look at gluttony, we'll just give it a tweak. Because if the Bible says it's bad, it probably is, but it's pretty close to perfect. But when we look at the Bible, we say, what does God think of sin? God sees sin as sin. And we need to come to him and say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. What have I done? I want to be in right standing with you. I want to be in a place where I'm doing the right thing. Because when God looks, this is what he sees. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now we look at this whole plebiscite, we look at all the things that are coming up, and we know there is an agenda behind it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that Satan has an agenda. In fact, there's been people who have come out and said, our agenda is to destroy marriage. They've physically said that. One lady on the radio was recorded. But we need to recognise that Satan has an agenda. It's not people, it's Satan. We need to recognise that. Satan wants to do away with marriage. He wants to train our children. He wants to take away our identity. He wants to take away freedom of speech. He wants to take away our religious freedom. He wants to do what he does best, which is steal, kill and destroy. That's his job. So don't act surprised when things happen around us and we go, oh, this is horrible. We need to fight this spiritually. What does the word of God say? Where do I stand? Because I know that Satan has an agenda, but I also know that God has an agenda. You don't sound too excited. God has an agenda. God's agenda is to show people who he is. We are told to go into all the world and make disciples. The word of God is real. It's God's word. He's protected it. He's enforced it. He's made sure it stood the test of time. He's proven it time and time again. His word says, seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you look for the answers, you will find them. If you want God to prove himself, he will. So know that the word of God is the word of God. Know that it's real for you today. Know that you are a disciple of Christ and the only thing you need to worry yourself about is what's between the covers of that book. How do I live my life in a way that I can reflect the yoke of Christ to others around me? Now, I don't want to put laws and burdens on people. What we need to realise is the yoke of Christ is actually freedom, not law. It's freedom to me. Now, I can turn around to a non-Christian and say, you shouldn't do that. Well, based on what? If they don't believe in God, everything I'm talking about is now not true. I have to show them who Christ is. I have to show them that Jesus is alive. I have to live this out day in, day out, because people need to see Christ, and the only way they do that is by looking at me and you. So the word of God is true, it's real, it's relevant, it's applicable to you. You are required to live this out day in, day out, and no matter what goes on around you, plebiscite, government laws, anything else, the word of God is your yoke, and that's all you need to live by. Amen?
Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the foundation point that everything we base our life on is your word. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Lord, we wanna thank you that you are from the beginning, that you've created everything in love, out of your word, in perfection. And Lord, we wanna continue to live according to what you have for us. We wanna live out the plans and the purposes for, for, for what you have for our lives. Lord, we acknowledge the fact that we are your disciples. We acknowledge the fact that we need to live by your word. We acknowledge the fact that we need to make other disciples so that we teach what you taught us and teach them. Father, give us the skills. Continue to stir our hearts. Continue to give us boldness to proclaim your gospel, to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples because you are worth living for. You are worth giving everything for. Lord, we surrender to you. We acknowledge you as God and we wanna thank you for everything you've done for us and we declare you Lord in Jesus' name, amen.